I'm going to pray briefly and then we'll look at this theme of what is the meaning of life. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this morning, the opportunity to think about big questions and for the gift of your word that that makes us wise, even as it challenges us with uh, difficult and confronting realities as well. Help me speak truly and help us hear well, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we've just read a poem, haven't we? A pretty grim poem. Here's another from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out. Out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, (laughs) full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So in his misery, Macbeth gives this pessimistic answer to the great question, what's the point? What's the meaning of life? Is there any meaning to our life at all? None, is Macbeth's conclusion. And it seems none is the conclusion of this teacher here in Ecclesiastes too, doesn't it? What's the point? It's just chasing after the wind. It's, It's... Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go. It's pretty grim, isn't it? The bleak challenge of Ecclesiastes hits us, and it's a bit of a shock. It's not the most cheerful part of the Bible. (laughs) You know, if you're wanting a thought for the day, an inspiration to get you through, you flip your Bible open and you hit Ecclesiastes, well, you kind of wish you hadn't, perhaps. Yeah. Um, some people even are kind of surprised to see something like this in the Bible. It asks challenging questions. What do we gain from all the things we do all the time? What's it all for? Does anything actually satisfy, even if you get it? Does anything really change, even if you achieve something? Will you be remembered even if you have? Yeah. Ecclesiastes can be a difficult thing for an optimist's immune system to cope with. You know, we, we respond, you know, all the white blood cells rally against it. And the Christian, a particular kind of Christian especially, can also find it pretty confronting and go, oh, no, 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 no. This is, I mean, like perhaps maybe for, for the atheist out there or something like this, then maybe this is true. But no, 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 this isn't true for us because we know Jesus and so it's all fine. Don't worry about it. You can kind of ignore it or something like that. Um, But I don't think even those of you who are Christians here, you should dismiss these riddles of Ecclesiastes too quickly and say, oh, well, that's for somebody else. It's not for me. Yeah. Um, I want to say that actually there's wisdom to be had in the kind of depressingness of Ecclesiastes. As we ask, what is the meaning of life? It's helpful to face the apparent meaninglessness of life. True wisdom should be a bit hard, a bit spicy, a bit challenging. If you seek wisdom but only ever get things that give you a warm fuzzy and tell you what you already know, well then you're not going to get that much wiser, are you? You know, it's by actually confronting things that might jar at first, that stretch you. Yeah. As Ecclesiastes says at the very, very end in chapter 12, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. There's something Uh, with a bit of a sting to it about wisdom. After all, the questions this book asks, what's the point? They're they're 
challenging, but they are relatable. Most of you, I'm sure even those of you who are Christian, most of you here are Christians, and even perhaps this week as you've looked at all the things you've got to do with uni or all the things you've got to do in some other area of your life or you're just up a bit too late and get the kind of late night blues, start to go, what's the point of it all? Why bother? Yeah? At least at some point in our lives, most of us will have that dark night of the soul. Even if a Christian has fundamentally profound answers to the question that we'll get to about what is the meaning of life, in your lived experience under the sun, to use this kind of Ecclesiastes way of talking, in this life, our lived experience can often feel pretty futile, pretty frustrating. So let's go on the Ecclesiastes project, shall we? That's my first heading, the Ecclesiastes project. Um, The author here is presented to us as the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, 1 verse 1. The the word translated teacher could perhaps be translated as the sage, the professor, or even the riddler, but not in the psycho serial killer Batman sense. Um, But but a kind of someone who's telling riddles, who's pondering things out and who's teaching these sayings. So who is this professor, this sage, this teacher? We're told it's... Son of David, king in Jerusalem. And further verses reinforce that. Verses 12 to 14. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and so on. Verses 16 and 17. Then I applied myself to... uh, So, uh, where is it? Uh, Verse 16, sorry. Um, uh, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Or 2 verses 9 to 11. Hints that way as well. That's been the the traditional generally held view that this is King Solomon, the successor to King David, and strongly associated with wisdom in the Bible. Um, the, the Proverbs as well are associated with, with Solomon, Songs of Solomon, a love poem, a wisdom about romance and love. Uh, you can read more about him in the Bible book of 1 Kings and his asking for wisdom rather than wealth or power. And his ruling with wisdom, so much so he became famous in the ancient world for his wisdom, not only about God, but even about the natural world, about politics, about uh, so on and so forth. Um, However, some people who study the book closer and note things like the vocabulary it uses and, and when that vocabulary was first kind of commonly used in the ancient world, suggest perhaps the book was written later than Solomon's time. So what does that mean? Maybe it was sayings of Solomon, which were then written down in this form later, perhaps. Some even suggest that it's, it's a different kind of form, perhaps a little bit like the play Macbeth or Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where you take on the character of Solomon as a vehicle for teaching. Some suggest that kind of thing. Be reassured that either way, the point of the book is the same. The book doesn't depend here on exactly who the author was or when it was written in this form. Um, The point is, in that sense, more abstract than its immediate um, authorship. It's about presenting a project to us and carrying us with us on this journey, the Ecclesiastes project. What is that project? Well, look at verse 13. 1 verse 13. I devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and much knowledge. 
Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Or again, going a little further, chapter 2. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure and find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Verse 9. I became greater by far, 2 verse 9, than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And yet this was the reward for all my labour. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, all that I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned myself, my thoughts to consider wisdom and madness and folly. It's trying to find in every avenue, isn't it? I look at the natural world, the sun rising and setting. I look at history. I look at great building projects, great wisdom, great... Fun, pleasure, folly, all the while, he says, guiding myself with wisdom to see, is there any point anywhere? Where's meaning and satisfaction and gain and profit and substance to be found? This teacher, this sage, is is seeking to reflect on what can be gained under the sun or under heaven. You see similar kinds of phrases, verse 3... Verse 9, verse 13, verse 14. Uh, some see there a bit of difference between under the sun, under heaven. I think it's pretty much the same thing, as best I can tell. Uh, it's to say this world, considered on its own terms, uh, kind of separate from God's word about the future and his work of salvation. Let's just look at this world, life in the here and now. So it's not kind of being an atheist, but it's just looking at the world on, on its own terms. Here's how one um, commentator, person writing about the Bible, describes it. Derek Kidner says this. At bottom, we can find the axiom of all the wise men of the Bible that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But this writer's main approach is from the other end. The resolve to see how far a man will get with no such basis, so with no uh, covenant of God, promise of God, with no Bible, He puts himself and us in the shoes of the humanist or the secularist, not the atheist, for atheism was hardly a going concern in his day, but the person who starts his thinking from a man, from man and the observable world and knows God only from a distance. This, of course, is asking for complications. There will be tension between the writer's deepest self as a believer, as a man of conviction with a faith to share, and his provisional self as a man groping his way by the light of nature. So that's why it's kind of like, it's described as a project. It's like he said, let's just put to one side for a second a deeper self, knowing that there is a God and his purpose and his promise and his plan and the history of the Bible. Let's put that to one side, that deep self, and instead with a more provisional self of this person in this project asking these questions, let's see what we can see under heaven under the sun. What is this life seen on its own terms like? And what does he discover? 
As the teacher goes into this project, asking what can be gained, what can be known, he reaches the conclusion that all labour, study, lobbying, saving, partying, indulging, all the ups and all the downs, one verse two, are meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Think about this poem that we read together. He looks at the cycles of the natural world. The sun goes up in the east, down in the west, and up in the east again. The wind blows to the north, and then to the south, or the streams go into the sea, verse 7, and then the sea never seems to get full because of evaporation and precipitation around and around it goes again. On and on and on and on and on things go. You get a sense of weariness as you read the poem. I think that's intentional in the way it's structured, to just go... Another generation, another generation, and they get old and they die, and they have kids and they get old and they die, and the sun's up again, the sun's down again, and it's the same old sun all over again, and then the universe all fades out in entropy. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> it's, it's a grim kind of a picture. Nothing is gained ultimately, just resets again. Now, now that's not to not deny there are changes of various kinds, sure. But the point is, there's no substantial change of a kind that means things are any different. We may go from dinosaurs to armadillos, but it's much of the same thing. They get old and they die. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the, the, the point of the poem. He considers human experience. Verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, the ear never enough of hearing. It will be, will be again. What's been done will be done again. There's no satisfaction, no lasting achievement to be found in life. You can never have enough, you can never be content, you can climb the ladder as high as you can, and then you see someone's higher than you are. Or you get right to the very top of the ladder, right to the very middle of the inner circle, and then all you are is at the top of the ladder and the centre of the inner circle, and that's it. And you look around at the others at the top of the ladder at the end of the inner circle, and they go, yep, this is kind of it. Oh, that's it, is it? You master your athletic pursuit, your musical pursuit, your intellectual pursuit, only to be bested by someone with that frustrating, prodigal, natural ability, or you really are the best, and you're all alone, and then you die. <laughs> There's so many examples of this. A few years ago, I listened to a TED talk about one of those extraordinary adventurer types. This guy was like into Arctic and Antarctic adventure stuff. You know those kinds of people? My son's getting into watching all those videos, like the... Like the free solo thing? I mean, how dumb is that? Like, it's literally as hard with or without the rope. It's just one way you die if you get it wrong. <laughs> like, these people are ill in some kind of way. My son thinks it's awesome. Um, there was one he was watching where they were going, yeah, so anyway, the guy had a head injury and the doctors said if he went up too high altitude, he'd have a stroke. So what we did is we went up high altitude and he had a stroke. <laughs> it's, yeah, anyway. Here's one of these guys, he's this Arctic adventurer, Ben Saunders, and here's how he summer in his TED talk, he says, I've sacrificed so much of my money and my human relationships for the pursuit of, quote, pulling heavy things across cold places. <laughs> What's it all for? I risked my life to climb up a cliff. <laughs> um, don't fool yourself, the teacher's saying, into believing that whatever it is, the great achievement the perfect house, the perfect boyfriend, the best career will make you ultimately happy. There are no lasting human achievements, he says, no ultimate progress. One might object, well, every now and then someone is so famous we still remember them. And that's it. 
It just remembered. They're dead. They're gone. They don't know. Uh, there may be technological, social, artistic advances in various ways. Yes. But even these things are used both for good and for evil and for a whole lot of mind-numbing YouTube poop as well. Uh, it, they're just round and round it goes, even the advances. You get a building named after you and then people just sort of sit on the steps of the building vaping. Uh, mm. There's a sense of futility the writer wants us to see. I had to memorise a poem in high school. Um, I don't trust myself to do it by memory now, so I'll read it to you. Uh, Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. Anyone know that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it captures this really well, doesn't it? I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell the sculptor well those passions read. So there's a broken up statue in the middle of a desert, right? There's some legs there, there's a face sneering in the sand, showing that once he was mighty. The hand that, uh, th- these things still survive, stamped in the lifeless statue. The hand that mocked and the hand that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And so the poet turns around to look at the works of Ozymandias. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And of course, ironically, there is a kind of despair there of a different kind, isn't there? Not despairing of his power, but his powerlessness. Ultimately, many people observe that Ecclesiastes is really a a whole big, long extended poem about Genesis chapter three, about death, about the curse, about the, the thorns and the thistles that grow up and frustrate our lives. The pain of childbearing and childrearing and then ultimately from dust we are and to dust we'll return. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Death renders everything meaningless, it seems, and that's what Ecclesiastes is pondering. Both the wise and the fool, the righteous, the wicked, the rich woman and the poor woman all end up in the same place. That's what chapter 3 says. 3 verse 19. 3 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Early 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell expands on this thought. He was an atheist, and he writes with real atheist bleakness when he says... The fact that man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves, his beliefs, are but the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond the grave, that all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried under the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only with the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. 
No wonder the teacher can say, when we look at life under the sun, it is meaningless. A word that means like fleeting, insubstantial. It's verse 13, a heavy burden, 113. Verse 14, it's chasing after the wind. 1 verse 15, it's a crooked thing you can never make straight, a lacking thing that can never be added up. So how do you live in a meaningless world then? What's the meaning of, what's the point then? Well, let's then think about that question because Ecclesiastes has a few things to say. It has a few bits to say about how to live even under the sun. But then also it does bring us to the answer the Bible ultimately gives about meaning found in God. So let's touch on each of those things as we come towards the, the close of the sermon. First then, how do you live in a meaningless world? Well, it is helpful to recognise reality. It's a downer, yes. It's not cheerful business, sure. The teacher probably wasn't a good hang. You don't kind of go, oh, what are you wanting to do now? Let's get the teacher over and let's, have a, let's get him over. Oh, don't invite him around. He's... It's a bit of a bummer to have that guy around. Let's invite someone else around instead. Um, but, but at some time in your life, it is a really good thing to stop and think these big questions, yeah, to ponder these deep issues, yeah. So it is worth pondering that. When, back when I was a, uh, a young Christian um, at uni and stuff, we used to like go out and watch kind of the, what the latest art house movie of the 90s that often was fairly depressing, um, but we'd go and do it with our friends and then talk about it afterwards. And it would often lead us to this kind of territory to go, yeah, let's stop and ponder. Well, what would you do if you were in the film? Is there a purpose? Is it all as depressing as this film suggests? Or if it's an optimistic film, are things as easy as this film suggests? Or is the life's problems bigger than this suggests? In order to live well, we'll need to face the fact that in this life there's many riddles, Things that can't be added up, twisted things that can't be untangled. There is a heavy burden to life in one sense. There is a chasing after the wind in life in one sense. Even the New Testament speaks this way. It says, today or tomorrow, James chapter 4, we'll go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. What? You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So yeah, it's, it's good to, to face the reality. And yet at the same time, the passage says, it's also good to learn to just enjoy life. It's really interesting that the same book that begins with this grimness goes on to say multiple times, in the end, you don't dwell on it forever. But 2 verse 24 and 25, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil this too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or drink or find enjoyment? 3, verses 12 to 14. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. That is the gift of God. Verse 22. I saw there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? We see it again in uh, 5, verses 18 to 20. It's good to enjoy your work and enjoy the sleep that comes from your work. 8 verse 15, I commend the enjoyment of life. There's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. 9 verse 7 to 10, go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, anoint your head with oil, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. 
all the meaningless days of your life? (laughs) Chapter 11 says similar. 11 verses 7 to 10. It's a theme that springs up throughout the book. It's not the ultimate solution. It's not like, think about the depressing stuff and actually, yeah, you know, don't actually. Just cheer up and pretend it's not like, just close the door and just go, actually, things are all cool. (laughs) Instead, what it's actually counselling is embracing your finitude, embracing your creatureliness to go, as a person seeking wisdom, face the brutal reality. And as a finite creaturely person, who can't live all the time in the philosophical realm, then go and have some nachos and some Fanta and hang out with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or go bowling or go surfing or uh, do, do your work and then get tired and go to sleep and wake up and have some Fruit Loops and so on. There's a sense in which both the, the wisdom recognises both the brutal realities and our, the reality of our finitude. There's no wisdom in being brutally, grimly cynical all the time. And as like if you've watched that um, uh, awesome Netflix show about Wednesday Adams, the Wednesday, like she's totally inconsistent, right? They all are. Like it's, I'm depressive and I hate everything, but I also have friends and I like them actually. And I'm kind of bad, but in a good, bad way. And <laughs> so I'm quite, there's a sense in which no cynic is consistently cynical. Um, that, that all of us at some point or another realise that there's a a reality of just getting on with life. And so the teacher says, in the end, seek wisdom by facing the reality, but also get on with life. He can do this with even more confidence, because remember, he's not an atheist. He's not saying ultimately life is fundamentally meaningless, like Bertrand Russell that I quoted. No, he's saying, I do know there ultimately is a God above the sun. There is a God in heaven. There is ultimately meaning. And so while I recognise the futilities of life, the gift of God can be experienced in the simple pleasures of life. I mean, it's interesting when you feel down and depressed, or your friends do, there's a mix of right responses, isn't there? One of the right responses is to do the philosophy together. That's part of it. You shouldn't brush philosophy away entirely. You know, there's a time going, yeah, that is a deep question. It's a hard question. And, and, and I'll meet you in that. But there's also a sense in which you need to go, if you're just stuck on that question, day after day after day after, it may be better for us to go, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's go the nachos and Fanta option today. <laughs> let's realise it's not your job to have to think about it all the time. That the gift of God, or if you're not a religious, then at least, the thing that you have now encountered in your life is a sunny day and a friend by your side. So let's just not overthink it and just go and get some sun. Do you see what I mean? So that, that's, the, that's that wisdom on that level. First bit. The other two bits of wisdom are under the sun that Ecclesiastes gives are uh, the value of wise thinking itself, kind of like the book of Proverbs. A lot of Ecclesiastes is like Proverbs and just observes cause and effect. Um, that if you are generous, people will be generous to you. Um, if you watch your tongue and don't gossip, then you won't get caught out when someone overhears you gossiping, and so on and so forth. So actually, funnily, Ecclesiastes begins depressingly, but in chapters 7 to 11, especially, starts to give a lot of kind of handy hints about being wise. Wise doesn't solve the problem of death. Wise people and fools both die. However, here are some handy hints. 
Ecclesiastes is a little bit weirder than Proverbs. Some of its advice seems a little bit cynical. Money is the answer to everything, it says at one point, for example. So there still is a kind of, um, uh, kind of darkness, a bit of a Wednesday Adams theme to the wisdom in Ecclesiastes. Um, but it still says, enjoy life, yes, and be wise, yes. If life is meaningless, you may as well enjoy some chicken nuggets occasionally and uh, manage your relationships skillfully or something, right? And then a final little bit of advice like that is it does talk about the benefit of relationships. Chapter 4 speaks about how it's better to be uh, with two or three others than on your own. Yeah? If one dies, lies down alone, they're cold. If two lie down together, they can keep one another warm. A strand with three cords is not as easily broken, and so on. Yeah? I think that might be why Ecclesiastes also gives a lot of political wisdom. That living in relationships is important. And so knowing how to manage that tactfully is, is wise. So don't be a dumb idealist who blows up all your relationships or a kind of an, an, a tortured emo artist that, um, that uh, loses all your friends. Yeah? But, but learn how to enjoy life, learn how to be wise, learn how to manage your relationships. However, there is a deeper question, and on this we close, the ultimate meaning of life. The ultimate meaning of life. Because finally... The teacher urges us to look above the sun, beyond the grave. Having done this extended meditation on life under the sun, this extended meditation on Genesis 3, the reality of death, chapter 12, he looks above the sun and gives us the answer to our question, what is the meaning of life? Chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. 12, 13. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. That beyond under heaven and under the sun and beyond the grave is something greater and bigger that gives deeper and richer and lasting meaning to life. Not only should we joyfully accept the good gifts God gives, but we should listen to the God who gave them. Remember God, fear God, obey God. He mentions that earlier, chapter 5, 1 to 7, chapter 11, verses 7 and following. Remember God while you're still young. The book drives to this point. There has to be something more. This can't be all there is. At the end of every grim, uh, dark, depressing art house movie, a Christian should say, but there's more to life than that. There's something more than that that we can look to above the sun, beyond the grave where we do gain, where we can know, where the lacking things finally do add up and where the twisted things finally are straightened out. The ultimate solution isn't found in this world, in nature or human wisdom, or even in Christian activity, because even that can be meaningless sometimes. You struggle and strive for a whole lifetime to build a Bible college in a new country, and then a flood or a famine or a military coup wipes away your life's work. Even in this life sometimes, even Christian work on its own can seem futile. No, it's not found in what we do in the here and now. But it's in knowing the God who made the world, his ultimate purpose and sharing in that. The ultimate solution is not found in this world, but in God. The creator God should be feared and worshipped and obeyed. 12, 13. He's the one who knows, who declares what is right and wrong, who can judge what is good and bad. 12, verse 14. The existence of a creator God gives life 
meaning at the most foundational level. Not the existential meaning we make for ourselves, not the um, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy meaning of deciding what matters to us that we will engage in uh, proactively, but something at a deeper level again, at a philosophically foundational level. Yeah? Day to day, people can find and live meaningful lives, but at a fundamental philosophical level, it is in God that lasting, true, actual meaning, not lowercase m meaning, but capital M meaning, is found. Yeah? At a deeper, objective, as philosophers say, ontological level, at the level of being. Yeah? The Gospel of Jesus Christ reveals even more about this still. Listen to Romans chapter 8. You might want to flip to it if you like, otherwise I'll just read along. Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. It sounds like Ecclesiastes being solved for us. The Apostle Paul writes, Romans 8 verse 19, The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This world is frustrating and leads us to groan in frustration. It feels like it's uh, burdened by decay and futility in various ways. But those who know God's ultimate purpose and in Christ have found it, have a hope that's already planted in them by the Spirit of a redemption, a release, a rescue, a transformation to come that we'll share with all of creation being redeemed and transformed and renewed. He recognises the same frustration as the book of Ecclesiastes while speaking confidently of a sure hope to come. So the Christian life then is wise in recognising these things. Here's how he goes on to speak in chapter 8 verse 28, and I'll finish with these words. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I'll finish there with a prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, we do groan with this world at the frustration. We do find joy in this world, in simple pleasures, in relationships and in wisdom. But please make us wise in thinking deeply about the big issues, a wisdom that leads us to find the most foundational sense of meaning and purpose in you, in life and meaning and goodness and hope that is found in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us again this morning, everyone. Thanks. And uh, feel free to hang around as long as you like, or I'll see you at quiz night or the next breakfast time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.